0: For free training on how to publish a book that sells 10,000 copies, go to selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. Hey, Chandler Bolt here, and uh, today I'm joined by James Clear. Um, James is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Atomic Habits. This book has sold over 4 million copies in in less than three years. It's got to be one of the fastest selling books um, I've seen recently. Uh, Now, James and I met, gosh, years ago uh, at an event and kind of became friends, and uh, then I look up, <laughs> and this, this book is published, and it sold 4 million copies. I looked on Amazon this morning, over 46,000 reviews on Amazon, which is just unbelievable. So um, I'm, I'm very excited to have James here. Today, we're going to be talking about a couple things. Um, number one, behind the scenes on this launch, how he sold so many books, all that stuff, uh, but then also how you can use Atomic Habits um, to write and publish a great book. So James, welcome. Great to have you here.
1: Hey, great to talk to you. Thanks for thinking of me.
0: Hey, so you've been writing for years, obviously. You've got the the newsletter, which we'll talk about later, but I mean, kind of in writing for years and you had a couple, I think, eBooks before that. Why did you finally decide to write this book, Atomic Habits? Um,
1: yeah, it was sort of a natural evolution of what I was working on. So I started writing articles at JamesClear.com in November of 2012 <clears throat> and really, So right around the end of that year, and so for the first three years, I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday, and um, that led to the growth of the audience and the growth of the email list, and there was also, as a writer, there were just a lot of things that I needed to do early on, like I sort of needed that volume of work to figure out uh, what I was going to write about, so I I explored some different topics, and it turned out that habits and decision-making and strategy and creativity, the stuff that I write about now, those were the topics that people wanted to hear more about that i was also interested in and then there were other things i wrote about like strength training and how to squat more and medicine and healthcare and stuff like that that did fine but just people weren't as interested in so i needed some time to find that kind of venn diagram overlap of what Mm -hmm. i loved and what the audience loved and then I also needed time to find my voice. So I would say it, it definitely took at least six months, probably closer to a year before I really had a good feel for like what a James Clear article was. Um, and so then I started to develop like kind of my style and taste and approach. And I knew what the topics were built the audience. And the email list was kind of like growing alongside as, as all that's going on. And based on the strength of that audience, um, I started to have agents and publishers reach out. And I had probably had a, a dozen or so friends write books at that point, just people I had met, you know, at different events or conferences or whatever. So I had a fair number of authors that I reached out to and just said, like, you know, what was this process like? Was it worth it? What do you feel like you you know, learned from it? And so I never really set out to be an author. I just sort of uh, stumbled my way there. But um, I did have this funny thing happen as I worked on it more, which is I've Yeah, I do like writing. I I didn't plan on that. But the more that I did it, the more I published each week, I was like, I actually do enjoy this. So uh, it sort of seemed like the natural next step in the evolution. And um, after those first three years, I signed a book deal with Penguin Random House and then spent the next few years working on Atomic
0: Habits. Nice. And so how did you, how do you figure out, I love that you said the Venn diagram of what you like writing about and what people enjoyed. Was that, I mean, was that page views? Was that comments engagement? I'm sure it was, you know, some scientific, some just gut feel, but how did you ultimately kind of land on this topic?
1: Yeah, it was a combination of like art and science or, you know, data and, and gut feel. Um, Early on, I did have comments on the blog for the first year or two. Um, I don't have them anymore. And, you know, I, I don't know that too many people use comments the way they used to. Um, but that was a little bit of feedback. Now, I feel like most of the comments that you get are through Twitter or Instagram or, you know, on social media in some way. Um So that qualitative response is still valuable. Probably the number one way that I get that both previously and still to this day is responses to the email newsletter because I send out full articles through the email. And so, you know, people read the whole thing and then they just click reply. And that's that gives me the best sense of it. Collectively, I can kind of have a gut feel for. Okay, I mean, I, we could actually just count up the number of responses if we wanted to do that, but I, I don't usually. Um, but you can tell, like, you send out an article and, you know, 10 people reply or 100 people reply, and you're like, okay, you know, one of these resonated a lot more. Um, I did look at page views uh, and, you know, just Google Analytics data on, you know, what's being shared and whatnot. That's a little tricky um, because, you know, let's say, you know, when I first started writing uh, after the first year, my email list was about uh, 30,000 people. But then, you know, after three years, it was like 200,000 people. So can you kind of, you know, accurately compare page views there? Like I'm sending it out to, you know, five X, the size of the, the audience or eight X. So um, that's tricky. It's also tricky because sometimes articles rank well in Google, and so then you're getting a bunch of traffic just because of SEO. So you need to parse through that a little bit. Uh, maybe it's page views within the first week, or I, I you know, I don't know, page views yeah. per subscriber. You come up with some sort of metric like that, but, yeah. um, but anyway, so yeah, I do look at the data, uh, number of shares on Facebook or Twitter or things like that. So, um, and collectively, I think all of that stuff together gives you a pretty clear picture of which ones are your winners and which ones aren't. And early on, that was helpful for just deciding what topics I was going to focus on more. But even once, you know, like in my case, I know I'm going to write about habits a lot or strategy or things like that, um, within that, I still have a question of, well, which ideas are good or not? You know, just, I, I may have 35 articles on habits, but you know, which ones are my top 10? Yeah. And that's really helpful to know that too, because then that helps inform what should go in the book or what you should lead with in the book. I always think you should lead with your best ideas. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it informs structure and choices like that.
0: That makes sense. So, so you're writing for years, finding your voice, you get the publishing deal, then you're working on the book. What was the process of writing that book? Uh, did you, I mean, I know a lot of people are fans of writing them kind of like as blog posts, like kind of leading up and so clear, mm-hmm. you know, figuring out what's resonating, but I guess what was your process? And then maybe two-parter of like, how did you use the principles of atomic uh, of atomic habits kind of in the writing process?
1: Yeah, I will uh, just answer the second part. Uh, first, I, I, I like to write about stuff that I actually use in real life. Um, you know, I, certainly it takes... <laughs> a yeah, I mean, you know, certainly it takes work to come up with a decent theory or, you know, you can do a lot of research. But at the end of the day, um, anybody can have an opinion. And the ability to implement ideas, I think is a, you know, reality is a strong test for whether an idea is good or not. Because if it works in reality, we can't deny that if nothing else, it worked for you. Uh, and so I, I like that as a... Uh, rubric or as a measure for what I should be writing about. So, you know, that's another reason I like things like habits, because I have to use the concepts in the gym to, you know, stick to my weight training routine, or I have to use it as a writer to, you know, finish the book. I mean, in a sense, Atomic Habits, some of the concepts are kind of proven just because the book exists, because I had to use them to, to finish the project. Um, so, you know, the main things that I do there are, uh, there's a lot of stuff about like setting the environment. So, you know, I talk a lot about priming the environment for the next action or, um, setting up, setting your, your environment up for success, uh, so that it's easy for you to write or easy for you to work out, things like that. Um, in my case, reading is a huge part of the writing process so I'm like surrounded by books like I have one two three four five I have six on my desk right now now I'm not reading six books at the same time but uh, the point is I should never be far away from a good idea uh, and most of the time they're not my ideas I'm just kind of surrounded by you know stuff and I can leaf open a book or jump to a relevant section find something that maybe inspires me or that I can build upon or whatever Um, Having a, like an automated way to get into the writing. Like I I used to do most of my writing in Evernote. Now I do most of it in Google Docs. But regardless of what tool you use, um, just having a good default where you just know where you're going to go uh, when you sit down to write. And, you know, I don't have to debate like what the process is going to look like. And then I would say for me, I, the way I get first drafts done is that I'm sort of, Let me explain this in a more broad way. So when I'm working on a book, uh, the idea, the main concept, the theme of the book is always sitting in the back of my mind. So for Atomic Habits, of course, that was how do we build a good habit or break a bad one? And I sort of sit with that idea for what most people would probably think like is an unreasonable amount of time, you know, like two or three or four years. And I'm working on the book the whole time as I'm doing that. But what happens is that because that's always in the back of your mind that you're working on this book. It's sort of like I I saw one writer describe it as it's kind of like this game of I spy for like an adult where you're like, I spy the blue thing. Mm -hmm. And then everything that's blue in your life, it like lights up and takes on this different quality and you start to notice it. Well, that sort of thing happens as you're working on a book. You pick up all sorts of examples. Oh, that's an example of a good habit. Oh, that's interesting. That's how they broke a bad one. Or this could maybe apply to that chapter. So you're always seeing things that are relevant. And that's the value of being in the middle of the project is it changes like how you view the world. And I think the key step there is to have some very quick, very easy way to capture ideas as soon as they arise. So in my case, I just do it in Asana because that's what we use for project management anyway. But you could do a note on your phone or a little notebook in your pocket or whatever. But whenever you come across these ideas in the real world, browsing Twitter, or you're at the gym, or you're walking down the sidewalk in your neighborhood, and somebody does something that sparks a thought, you need a way to capture that right away. And I'm doing that all the time. Like I bet I probably capture easily over 10 ideas a day, I would say. Um, And sometimes it's like me just riffing like a whole paragraph out at once. And other times, it's just like a real quick little thought and something for me to follow up on later. But because I have an easy way to capture all that in Asana, and I'm just kind of listing them all out there. I go back to that at the end of each day or each week. I don't do it every day, but you know, fairly consistently and take all those notes that I have. Cause that's essentially what that is. And then I dump it all into Google docs and I start to organize it based on like where it falls in the outline or what part of the book it's related to. And the reason I mention that is for me, the first draft is always the hardest part of writing a book. And if you're always taking notes like that, just kind of soaking up or capturing little bits of the experience, you're never working from a blank page. And I'm, I'm never working from a blank page. In fact, what I usually have is I have way too many notes and I'm (laughs) trying to trim them down to have it be compressed and tight and easy to understand. And that makes the writing process, I think much different because for me, most of writing a book is actually rewriting or compressing or editing Mm. the notes that I have. It's not generating a book from scratch. Um, Mm. And so uh, that capture part of the process is really important. So I sort of only answered half of your question there, but that's kind of how I use some of the principles from Atomic Habits to actually write the book.
0: That's great. I love that. I love the priming, the environment, the the incubating the idea, the always ca- the capturing the ideas, and then kind of how you said is the synthesizing is the hard part. That's awesome. Um, so obviously, that's I mean that's a huge part of the reason I think the book is so good and and it resonates with so many people and has had kind of this long tail of just continued. It seems like from the outside, it continued to increase sales. So let's talk about because I want to talk about like the long term sales of the book and all that good stuff. But I guess first, I'd love to touch on the launch. Like yep. How did you launch the book? What did that look like? And, and and what were a couple of things that you did that worked well?
1: Uh, so a lot of planning went into the launch. Um, you know, the book, depending on how you measure it, the book took between three to five years to write. Um, three years technically from when I signed the book deal, but some of the ideas I've I'd been working on before for the proposal and, and so on. Um, the launch itself was about... 12 to 15 months uh, of between planning and execution and recording interviews and getting to launch day and all of that. Um, You know, I don't know that it it needs to be that long, but that's how long it was for me. Um, I do think that it's a multi-month process and that if you try to launch a book in, you know, two weeks or something, a lot of times authors will come to me and they'll say, my book comes out in five weeks, which I do. And there's still plenty of things to do, um, but it's kind of late at that point uh, to do like a huge launch. So anyway, the, the answer to your question is um, I could probably distill our launch down to like three to five primary things. Most of these things that I'm about to share are not going to be a surprise to people who are familiar with book launches. But in my case, what we tried to do was just do what we knew worked, but at a larger scale than what most people do. So number one is the email list. Um when I signed the book deal, I had about 200,000 subscribers and the book came out. It was about four, I think it was 440 or something like that. Um, now, after a couple more years and the success of the book, it's over a million. Um, so I'm excited for the next launch because I think, you know, we'll be even better positioned. Um, but so the email list is a big part. Your own audience is going to drive more sales than anything else. Um, I sent out a, a, the first announcement about the book came out two months before launch. Uh, Let's see, the book came, uh, two and a half months um, before the book came out. So I said, you know, book is available for pre-order. If you want to help, like the number one thing you can do is order it here. Then I just continue my regular articles. Once we got about uh, two weeks before launch, um, I mentioned like we had a suite of bonus packages. So if you bought one book, you would get something. If you bought three books, if you bought 10 books, Um, look, looking back on it now, I would probably skip that if I was going to do it again. It just didn't move the needle very much. Um, in total, we probably sold like an extra 700 copies uh, because of the bonuses, wow. which you know yeah. is nothing to sneeze at. Like I'd, it's great to have 700 than not, but it wasn't the type of thing that like um, you know you went from selling a thousand copies to ten thousand copies or something. Yeah. Um. So it was a lot of work for the bonuses, and I don't think it had the payoff we were hoping for. Um. So then the, uh, once the bonuses were announced, we actually got to launch week and I sent four emails during launch week. Uh, I sent an excerpt on Monday, uh, just said, you know, hey, this is a, a free excerpt from the book. Um, it comes out tomorrow. Tuesday was launch day. Um, so the second thing that I would layer on to the, the email portion is doing some kind of mainstream media. Uh, in my case, I went on CBS this morning and did uh, an interview on there. It was about five or six minutes. Um, You know, not everybody can secure a a spot on television or something like that, but I do think it's valuable to have some sort of high quality uh, video clip, ideally from national media. And if you can do that, what we were able to do is, I did the, um, the interview that morning on Tuesday at like eight. They take that clip and they put it on their YouTube channel at like nine, And then I took that video and sent it out to my audience at like 10 uh, in the email. And, you know, it said, the book is out today. I was just on CBS talking about it. Here's the clip. You can buy it here, blah, blah, blah. And that was our best performing email of launch week. Um, I think having some kind of national media segment just makes it feel like a thing. You know, it's not like, oh, a guy is just launching his book. It's like, oh, this is, you know, some kind of event. Um, So that helped a lot. Uh, then Wednesday was off and then Thursday I sent another excerpt, um, from the book. And then Friday, uh, it was like last call launch week is ending. The bonuses are ending that kind of thing. Um, so that was the email side. Then we had the major media piece. Uh, the other big push was podcasts, uh, which again I'm sure you know, not a surprise to most people. But um, I had 75 podcasts that I had done interviews for, recorded, and asked to release during launch week, um, and all of those came out like roughly within you know the 10 days around when the book came out. Um, over the course of the next six months, I did 200 interviews uh, in total, so it was like a pretty big scale of of podcast recordings and stuff. Um, So email newsletter, mainstream media, podcast. And then, I don't know, if I was going to pick something else, I would probably say uh, sending influencer copies. Um, But the catch with that is I feel like it's done poorly most of the time. Um, You know, like I get all kinds of books sent to me and, and don't have the time or space to read most of them, didn't ask for most of them or know they were coming. So in my case, I reached out to everybody beforehand and said, you know, Here's a primer on the book. I would love to send you a copy if you're interested. If you are, then please, you know, send your address back. And we only sent books to people who opted in, um, and asked for one to be sent Mm, to them. And, um, you know, I think because of that, everybody who got one was excited to get it and was much more likely to read it. Um, we actually did not ask people to share it. Uh, I, I, like, I didn't tell them, hey, please share this on Twitter, or Instagram or whatever, but many of them did. Um, and so, uh, yeah, my thought was just like, I just want to get the, hand, the book in the hands of like, people who will genuinely enjoy it and want it and who have an audience that you know, it could potentially benefit. And then you just sort of think, you know, hopefully the quality of the book will do the rest. So um, those are the main things that we did for launch.
0: Awesome. I like that, and I like the, that it's not a quid pro quo approach or whatever. Where it's, but it's like it's a double opt-in, and you're sending it and saying, "Hey, hope you love it," <laughs> and and, yeah. and just the the natural reciprocity and sharing that happens from that. I mean, you obviously saw that play out. So post launch, I mean, the book sold over four million copies in the last or in less than three years it's i mean on top of the new, or on the new york times and wall street journal whatever list i feel like pretty much every time i look <laughs> it's on there and so it just keeps selling and selling and selling it, it, can you put your like why do you think this book has done so well is there anything you've done post launch that's helped with sales Um,
1: well, I'm always, there's some continual marketing stuff that's always happening. So, you know, I send out my email newsletter every week and, you know, try to provide a ton of value. And all of those emails have links to the book in them, you know, at the bottom or whatever, like it's a soft sell, but it's, it's always there. Uh, you know, my website gets a lot of visitors and there are links to the book, you know, on, on that page and stuff, social media and so on. So, there's, um, there's always kind of some low level marketing stuff going on. Uh, but none of that is going to drive some massive spike, but it's just it's always running in the background. So I just mentioned that to say, like, it's not like we're not doing anything. Um, but uh, I think the primary thing, I mean, most books, to be honest, the potential for most books is probably already decided before you've written the first draft. Um, and the reason is because you need to think very carefully about the topic that you select. And, you know, the example I give is like Atomic Habits has uh, a chapter in it later uh, where I talk about deliberate practice. Now, it could have been a book about deliberate practice where I talked about habits. But instead, it was a book about habits where I talk about deliberate Mm. practice. And I think the difference in how those two books would sell is enormous. Because just by virtue of growing up in society and being a part of culture, you sort of know that having good habits is favorable and having bad habits is unfavorable. And I don't really need to explain to you like why that's a valuable thing or something that, you know, you would desire or want. Um, Deliberate practice, if you're not familiar with the concept, like it takes 30 seconds to unpack it. And the truth is you don't get 30 seconds. Um, You know, like I always try to think about my book needs to sell itself. If somebody is looking at it, I'm not there. I can't explain it to them. they have never heard my name. They have no context or familiarity with my work. And even if that total stranger is looking, they need to be able to look at what I call the frame of the book, which would be the title, the subtitle, the um, cover, essentially everything you'd see on the cover. Yeah, And that needs to be enough for them to be like, okay, I get why people would read that. You know, like not every person in the world is going to read your book or want to buy it or be interested, which is fine, but they should be able to look at that frame and understand what that desire is and why people would want to read it. Um, It should be pretty explicit and clear right away. And uh, I do think Atomic Habits does that well. I think that, you know, habits is a topic that there are many books on and that there are multiple bestsellers on and people like already have a desire for it. You, When you're choosing what to write about, when you're choosing the topic for your book, I don't think you want to be convincing people that they should pay attention to it. Instead, you want to convince them that your book is the best on something they already pay attention to. Um, And so topic selection, I feel like, is uh, probably the number one thing.
0: Yeah. And you're channeling existing desire versus creating new desire of something that people don't actually want to learn about. I love, I don't even know that you
1: can create a new desire to be honest. I mean, I, it's, you can create, you know, someone might be like, well, what about Uber? But like Uber didn't create the desire to be transported across town. You know, like they just found a different line of attack, a different like way to tap into a desire that already existed. I think a lot of great books do the same thing. They just give you a new angle on something people already want. Now, the one thing that I want to add to this is I feel like especially authors who are more artistic or literary or, you know, want to just like write what they they want to write or, you know, create a work of art, resist that, that like marketing side a lot. It like mm-hmm. bothers them to think about having to, you know, frame it in a way that, you know, the reader wants or something, but
0: Hey, Chandler Bolt here. I hope you're loving this episode so far. It's time to go from inspiration to implementation. All right, so if you've learned something, we want to help you implement what you've learned with your book. So what I want you to do right now is go to selfpublishing.com forward slash schedule, book a publishing consultation with one of the experts on my team. We'll talk about your goals for your book, your dreams, your challenges, your next steps, and we'll start putting together a plan. All right. So go to selfpublishing.com forward slash schedule, book a call with the team. Let's see how we can help with your book. It's time to implement.
1: I feel like a lot of authors start with the point that they want to make and then work forward from there. And instead, what I'm arguing is start with what the reader wants and work backwards to the point you want to make. So it doesn't actually mean that you can't write about what you want to write about, or that you, you know, that you can't cover the artistic literary thing that you normally cover. Yeah. Not saying that at all. You can write, you actually, the great irony of this, is you can actually write whatever you want in between the pages, but it's just about framing it in a way so that people will actually open it up and get to page one. Now there is a careful balance there because you can't just say like, you know, can't write how to get rich on the cover and then write about like yeah. language learning techniques or yeah. something inside. Like it has to be aligned. Uh, it has to be honest in that way, but there, there are lots of ways to do that. And I think that, um, people have a much wider latitude than they realize, but you still cannot get around the fact that people have to pick your book up and open it for you to make this great art to art, um, artful literary point that you want to make. So you need both of those things. And I think you need to start with what the reader wants and work backwards to what you want to say.
0: Yeah. I couldn't agree more, man. It's, and you touched on two concepts. We talk about a lot, which is one of my call chocolate covered broccoli. It's like sell them what they want and give them what they need. And it's exactly what you're saying. It's, it's, Hey, this is what it's packaged in what they want, which is the atomic habits. And then there's what they need in the inside, which is the deliberative practice. Right. Mm -hmm. And 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 in the similar way, we always talk about you know confused people don't buy, and the job of your cover, your title, your subtitle is is your prospect or potential reader should instantly understand what the book's about and whether or not it's for them. I feel like you nail this with with the cover, with the way that it's positioned, the title is easy to read. It's it's very clear. It's and it and and confused people don't buy, right? So people glance at that cover, um, they either pick it up off the shelf or click into the Amazon listing. I think it works really, really well. Hey, I want to shift gears a little bit F- on a similar note, I guess to, to 46,000 reviews on Amazon. I mean, that's crazy. And anything that you've done to th- that's worked well for reviews?
1: Um, early on as part of the launch, we had a group of people who, you know, were part of the launch team sort of thing. Um, it was just a collection of, I think we had a hundred or 150 readers that, um, you know were members of my email list and seemed engaged and wanted to check the book out early and so they got a you know they got a copy ahead of launch and then on launch day or launch week you know we asked them to leave reviews and so that kind of helped seed things um, you know, at this point the books sold millions of copies. So relative to total sales, 46,000 is, you know, I, I, it'd be interesting to compare it to, you know, a book that has sold say 50,000 copies and how many yeah. reviews that has, like it might be the case that it just kind of tracks linearly. And the main answer is just scale. Um, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, so we did that early on and, uh, I think that definitely helped. Um, That's probably the main thing I can say in terms of reviews, because the calls to action inside the book drive people to the email list. Um, And so like we're not my point is like we're not trying to drive reviews in that way or something. uh, or We don't ask for it like at the end of the book or something like that, although you Mm -hmm. could. um, Yeah. But uh, but yeah, so that's probably the main thing.
0: Got it. Okay. Um, what I, you talked about, you talked about the email list just now, and, and you've mentioned that multiple times. And I think a lot of times for people, it's the chicken or the egg. It's like, do I build this email list and audience, and then publish a book? Do I publish a book and build an email list? I mean, you've done both in a sense. Like you built a solid email list, and then the book has accelerated um, your email list. So, any practical tips for folks on on growing an email list, and then I guess especially using a book to grow yeah. an email list.
1: Um. So there are a lot of ways to win. Uh, I think you can do it either way and I have examples of friends who started with a book and didn't have an audience and then used essentially used their book launch as the catalyst to build a list. Um, and then on my hand, uh, on my side, I focused on audience growth you know for years before launching the book. So uh, both ways can work. Um, I I think the audience is the most important thing because it's this like incredibly flexible asset. Uh, once you have it, if you you know if you want to write a book, you can direct people toward that. If you want to launch an iPhone app, you can do that. If you want to start a service business, like wh- whatever you want, you can email people about it. So it's I feel like the email list is the engine, the backbone of you know the whole thing. Um, in terms of tips for growing a list, I I generally group things into a couple different buckets. The the first bucket is um, essentially design, web design and conversion. You know, it doesn't matter if you're getting a million visitors to your website, if you don't have a design that is capturing some of that attention or, you know, like securing new subscribers, then it's kind of like a leaky bucket and just, you know, the water's just all flowing through. So I do think that's a good place to start uh, because the design is a sort of a one-time cost. I mean, you do want to revisit it occasionally, but once you get uh, setup that's converting fairly well, you can leave that design there for years. Um, you know, I mean, I, I had basically the same design for the first like six years of the website and I just updated it recently and we'll probably keep this one for a few years. So it's a, it's a nice thing to do and get dialed in and get like the forms in the right place and get conversion going because once you do that, it's kind of like you paid this upfront cost and it works for you like every minute after that. So I think it's very high leverage. Um, You're welcome to look at my site, jamesclear.com and just see like how I lay it out, like where I put the forms and um, why. And uh, I think that's like a good, um, you know, template uh, for people who are looking for a place to start. The most obvious things to do are like to have your homepage, have that it's called the hero section, like right there above the fold, just the first thing that people see when they come to the homepage. It should be an email form with a very clear explanation of why they should sign up and what they're going to get. And um, again, you can see how I do all that. Um, the p- pages that are going to get the most traffic are your individual articles. So I'm assuming you're having a blog here. Uh, you don't have to. You could just have a you know something different, but. Um, but anyway, so optimizing those pages uh, as well, the individual article pages is, is important. Uh, I always have a separate page for my newsletter. Uh, so jamesclearcom slash newsletter, or in my case, jamesclearcom slash 321, which is the name of my newsletter. Um, because that is a link that I can share at the end of interviews or at the end of you know an, an article that I write or if somebody's featuring me in a profile and they want to link to my site, like they can include it. And the nice thing about that is if somebody already has consumed content from you elsewhere, you usually can just direct them straight to the signup page. They don't need to like go to your website and browse it and learn more. They're actually like ready to, to sign up. So anyway, those are just a few things on the conversion side. Uh, the rule of thumb that I like to keep in mind is um, 2%. So if 2% of your visitors are confer- converting to the email list then, uh, or more, then you're usually in a pretty good spot. Um, So for every 100, this is just total visitors over total new subscribers. So let's say 100,000 people came to your website uh, next month and if 2000 people sign up to the email list that month, then that's high enough that your conversion is probably not the problem. Uh, You need to drive more traffic. If you're under that, then conversion is the bottleneck and you wanna fix the design. On our end, we try to hit the 3%, we don't always get there. Um, When I had less traffic, uh, I was able to get four or five, six, you know, 7%, but uh, gradually that gets harder and harder as the the pie grows. Um, So anyway, so that's the first bucket is email conversion. So figuring out the design. Second thing is traffic. Um, you know, this has changed a lot over the years. The thing about the internet is like it moves pretty quick, and where you get traffic from, you know, this year may be very different than where you get it from in two years. So, you know, I had a period of time where I got a lot of visitors from places like Quora or Reddit or Y Combinator, and um, now, or sorry, um, Hacker News, um, and now you know, I don't really get any traffic from Quora. So it's very, it's very different. Um, I think one of the most effective things we've seen recently, although again, I'm sure this will change in a year or two, uh, is using Twitter and Instagram to drive email subscribers. So share some free content on there do that pretty consistently, build the audience up, get more followers, and then maybe once a week or once every two weeks, mention the email newsletter in a post and drive people back to that sign up page. Um, And then of course, Google is probably the one persistent form of traffic. So SEO um, and just kind of optimizing your articles so that they rank well in Google uh, has been very fruitful for us as well. Um, So conversion and traffic are probably the two big pillars that I look at when it comes to building an email list.
0: Awesome. So helpful, man. Hey, we're right up. We're coming up at time here. So I've got a couple of quick final questions. Uh, First one, um, this is a big question, probably bigger than we have time for, but uh the, the, you you created the clear habit journal Um mean it looks like maybe even before atomic habits it looks like it sold decently well 777 reviews on amazon um, as of today habit journals journals or planners companion to books recommend it or not and has that sold decently well
1: yeah, it's done decently well. Um, you know, it hasn't, uh, comparing it to Atomic Habits feels sure. probably unfair, um, <laughs> yeah. but it came out after Atomic Habits. Uh, the book launched in October. The journal came out in December. Um, and so my hope was to kind of capitalize on that sort of new year energy and, uh, you know, give the book like a second wind, uh, give the Atomic Habits a second wind because like now you can get the book and the journal. Um, yeah, I've been happy with the project for what it is. Um, I think here's my hesitation, which is books in any form of creative media, books, movies, music, whatever uh, tweets, even are a power law game. And so almost all the returns, in other words, the, all the sales in this case, in uh, the case of books and notebooks go to the people who are in the top 1%. And then even within that 1%, it's like the top 1% of the 1%. So it's very, it's very skewed distribution And so what that means is that it's a hit driven industry. And I think a lot of notebooks and follow on products like that are exactly that. They're follow on products. They're trying to like kind of ride the the wave of the thing that you produced before. And that's okay. but they're almost never going to be a hit in their own right. And so you're kind of it's a little bit self-defeating in that sense, because what you really want to do is you want to create the next hit. Um, and so, you know, the question is not like, how can I create this follow on product? It's like, how can I make the next Hamilton or, you know, the next, like, how can I create the next thing? that's going to be this huge splash now you know, different people have different objectives. Like maybe you want to round out your product portfolio or just have another revenue stream. Maybe it's something your readers have been asking for, which is what it was in my case. And you just wanted to offer that product to them because a lot of people would find it useful. So there are plenty of good reasons to do it. I just, um, it's not the kind of thing that's going to like radically transform your uh, author career.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, James has been awesome, man. Knowing what you know now, (laughs) what would be your parting piece of advice for the James from years ago before you wrote this book and the other Jameses out there that are thinking about and about to write their first book?
1: Well, I remember when I started uh, in 2012, I thought I was too late. Um, I thought all the big blogs had already been started. Uh, It seemed like most of the good topics had already been chosen. Um, And so there weren't that many ideas. And I was kind of late to the game, although the stars had already risen. And I can imagine if the, you know, if I was like 10 years younger or something right now, and I was listening to an interview like this, you know, and here's this guy who has this book that's selling well, and he's got a million email subscribers, I would probably be thinking that again. I would probably think, oh, it's too late, you know? But the truth is the next person who's going to build a million person email list is starting somewhere right now. Um, And I find that super inspiring and exciting. Um, You know, the internet is in something like the second inning right now, I mean, it's very early. There's, you know, another billion people coming online through devices and wireless and broadband and all this other stuff. Uh, the next, you know, there's a massive tailwind, uh, that's going to be coming and staying for the next 10 years or 20 years or longer. And, um, you know, the example I always give is like, I actually don't know anybody whose email list is getting smaller. Um, they're growing at different yeah. rates. Maybe. <laughs> maybe maybe you're only adding one subscriber a month or something like they could be growing very slowly, but I don't know anybody's who's shrinking. Mm. And the reason that is true is because there's this massive tailwind. There's just yeah. this hugest rising tide that raises all boats. And so for me, it's like as exciting of a time as it's ever been to be someone who creates ideas and shares them online, whether that's an author or a podcaster or YouTuber, whatever it is you're excited about this is the time to start. And, uh, so I think that would be the number one thing I would say is it's not too late. Um, stay focused, get started and just try to do the best work you can.
0: So good. When's your next book come out? Uh, My publisher would love to know as well. Um, (laughs) The the first
1: one, like I said, took me multiple years. Uh, This one, uh, hopefully I will have learned some lessons and be able to put it out a little more quickly, but I'm about a year in and uh, I still got a long way to go. So we'll see, but I'm going to keep showing up each day.
0: Cool. Well, I can't wait to hear more about that and maybe even bring you back and we'll talk about the next one. James, this has been awesome, man. Uh, Where can people go to buy your book? Um, to subscribe to the newsletter. What we didn't talk about is is like, this is a prolific newsletter. So like one way to grow (laughs) email subscribers is to have a newsletter that everyone talks about and shares with their friends. So, and where can people go to to subscribe for that and check out what you're up to?
1: Yeah, if you want to check out the book, uh, it's called Atomic Habits and you can get it at atomichabits.com. And then the newsletter is called 321. And each week I send out one message on Thursday that has three short ideas from me two quotes from other people and one question to think about for the week. And uh, it's real quick. You can read it in two or three minutes, Um, over a million people subscribe. And so if you go to jamesclear.com and click on newsletter, you can check that out, see the articles I've written, just kind of browse and see what's interesting to you.
0: Awesome. James, thanks so much, man.
1: Of course. Thank you.